Coming up in just a moment, we're going to have Universal Perspectives with Chris Skyhawk. Hi, Chris. Good evening, Rich. Thanks for being here with me. Uh, yes, uh, I'm excited about the show tonight. We're going to start with two guests, the pe people that are working with the trees at Jackson State Forest, and particularly uh, with the emphasis on the youth. That, that has become quite a focal point for the youth of our community to express their concerns about the forest as well as the health of the entire climate of the planet Earth. So we'll talk to people out there with that. And then the bulk of the show, I'll have Daniel Sheehan. He's a staff attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project. That's a group of people in South Dakota that works on enhancing and protecting Lakota cultural practices. So I'm excited about our show. Okay. Rich says I have to talk a little more while he finds the music here. Yes, our CD didn't work the way we had planned it was, so he's finding a song for us. I'll just add our, chatter on inanely here for a few minutes while we get dialed in. Thank you for being with us here tonight. I'm excited to be, have the show for you. I'm particularly excited about the youth of our community finding expression for the many, many concerns that people have around the climate and the state of our public forests here. Yeah, Chris, go ahead and, and let them know what we're in for tonight. Uh, it doesn't look like the music's going to line up. Well, I go ahead and bring you on your guests and uh, maybe preview uh, what uh, what triggered this, this show in the first place. What made you interested in, in getting these guests for today's show? Well, there's, uh, as people know, have been listening to KZYX, it's been covered a lot here on the station. We have uh, the uh, Mendocino Trail Stewards raised a lot of concern about the multiple number of timber harvest plans that are going on in Jackson State, particularly, particularly along the western edge of it, near Casper. And so that spawned a, a group of people who put up a tree set out there. And now what has happened is that the youth of our community has been meeting out there regularly, and we're going to talk to a couple of them. And they've been out there every Saturday, and there's been a supportive community of adults and parents around with them just kind of contain them and and help them find what their message is, and we'll have those two people on here in a minute. Andy Wellspring, he's one of the parents, and Jessica Rose, she's one of the youth. Hello, Andy. Hello. Yes, Andy, how are we doing? This is, this is Chris here. If you would just describe a little bit about your activities and how you are supporting the youth of our community in this gesture they're making. Andy, did you hear that question? Apparently, Andy, I can hear Andy, but Andy can't hear me, I oh, think. Oh, is that right? Okay, well, yeah. I, um... I can hear you. Hello, Sarah. This is Chris Skyhawk. Hi. How are you doing, Sarah? Sarah, would yeah. you would you like to kick off the show and tell us a little bit about why you are have been involved involved with the Jackson State issues and uh, what you've done so far out there? Um. Yeah. I just I heard that they were planning on cutting down some of these beautiful old redwoods that we have in Jackson State Forest, and I just that's really not something that should be done because they add so much to our community. So, Sarah, what kind of activities have you been involved with so far out in the tree sit area? Um, I've done a little ground support, just being there to help the tree sitters. And I've gone to some, like, rallies and just tried to, like, raise awareness for what's going on. And, Sarah, what is your, um, as a young person, what are your concerns about this forest and about planet? Also, how things are going with the planet, with the climate. Yeah, I mean, just like seeing the way that the world has been progressing due to climate change is pretty worrying. And these big, beautiful redwoods are doing oh, their part to help keep it in check. And if we cut them down, then it's just going to worsen the effects of climate change and take out some of our best helpers. Mm hmm Hello, Andy. Are you with us, too? Hi. Okay. Hello, Andy. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sarah. Andy, Hi. thank you for being on. Andy, I was wondering, Sarah was talking a little bit about what she has been doing so far and her reasons for her concern. Would you talk a little bit about your support for this action that the kids are taking and how you are working with the kids, the young people, and getting their message out? Oh my gosh, yeah, it's it's so inspiring to see this. Like, there were <laughs> so many different young people who came out and were talking to their parents, like, hey, I want to go again. And I've been getting emails now from young people being like, I'm sorry we couldn't come last weekend. I was trying to go, but I can't drive. 
<laughs> it's just great, you know? It's like they really want to be coming out. And, you know, that's that's a big part of it for me. It's just thinking about my daughter, and who's almost six years old, and her passion and her saying, you know, we need these trees around for our future, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, I got to do everything I can for, for that future, you know? So what... What is going to happen here in terms of having the youth get their message out into the broader public? Oh, well, you know, one thing for sure is that we're, the, we decided at the, these first gatherings that we're going to continue gathering every Saturday from noon until 3 at the trees. And as a way to spread the word, please, everybody who's listening, Come on out to the tree sit Saturdays noon to three and bring a friend and then everyone who comes will be able to spread the word to more people and I think it's important to go there to actually go to the trees because we can all think about it in our minds and be like yes we know that second growth redwood is sequestering carbon more quickly than any forest type in the world we know this from scientists like J.P. O'Brien but you got to go there to the forest and see it because I was stunned when I saw how big these trees are that have the blue line painted on them for cutting. I I could have sworn that this illegal. They're too big, but that's the plan and that's the proposal. And so every time I go out there, I feel so much better. I just get all this energy from the forest. It's a beautiful place to be. So. I think that's the first most important thing. If we go, we feel connected there, and then we'll we'll know what to do next. So, Andy, when you say the people should go there, how do you tell people to get there? Oh, okay, great. Well, the, it's it's in Casper, you know, in between Mendocino and Fort Bragg, and you know, Fern Creek Road is that big road with the duck pond there, and you go east on Fern Creek Road. And then the first chance you have to turn right, called Casper Orchard Road, you turn right there. You pass these weird metal art sculptures on the right-hand side. You keep going until the road turns dirt. And then when it turns dirt, you're going to turn left, and you're going to head east inland, and you go on up that way. It's exactly three miles from Highway 1. So set your odometer when you leave the highway at the duck pond, and you go three miles uh, until you get there. You'll see on the left-hand side of the dirt, you'll see a little mile marker says 1.5, and that's measured from a you know parking area back a little ways. But you'll see that on the side, 1.5 miles, and you park on the right, and then you walk across a little trail into the woods on the right-hand side. And you'll hear people, and you'll you'll see it along the way. This is not too far from the road. I am particu particularly interested in what's happening here in in Casper, in Jackson State. At this time, the Sunrise Movement is sponsoring a a march uh, with young people. They're marching right now from Houston to New Orleans, 400 miles, to raise awareness about climate change and be a voice for the young people who are going to inherit this planet. So, of course, Greta, Greta Thunberg is the most most obvious example of this youth movement. But it seems like people are really coming together around these issues. Yeah, that's cool to hear. I, um, you know, I really am really inspired by, by Sarah's work, actually, on this front. Sarah is like a real leader at Mendocino High School and um, in terms of these environmental issues and has been involved in um, several different things that I'm aware of and probably even more, but I'm curious, what do you think, Sarah, about the climate marches happening right now and everything going on in the world? I mean, I just think it's wonderful that people are really being active and expressing how dire the situation is and just trying to come up with solutions for what we can do in order to sort of make this planet somewhere that we can live for a long time. Sarah, how do you see this um, this group of young people 
in terms of getting their message out into the into the public, into the wider diaspora. What kind of methods do you see yourselves as as moving the message that you have of concern for Jackson State and the future for the planet? Um, I mean, I just, I think that, like, any sort of climate activism that can be done is really important, just, just so that everybody's thinking about it all the time, and it's always on everybody's mind. And for Jackson State in particular, I think that it's really important to, like, just save these um, really beautiful forests that we have that we get to live in and appreciate. And I hope that people can continue talking about it and working. Yes, I was uh, stunned by a picture that I saw recently. I think it was after one of the gatherings out there, and somebody took a picture of the trail that leads to the mama tree, the tree set. And I was stunned how small the people looked. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was epic. It was like people, these people were ants by these trees. And it really inspires a sense of majesty. Yeah. Really are. You know what? So powerful. Yeah, and you know what? You all just reminded me of by saying that. The the words of right, a Pomo elder who's been speaking up in defense of this forest. And just to remind us that, you know, something that she talked about is how, you know, the Pomo people, when they would take care of these forests, like, they were not cutting down these trees, you know, like, um, they were not trying to do that. Like, if a tree fell down, they would use it to build houses and stuff or things like that, you know. But um, we need to regrow old growth. Redwood trees can be the biggest living thing on the entire planet mm -hmm. if humans don't get in their way, right, <laughs> and cut them down. So that's, like, something I feel like our society owes that to the Pomo people that we could regrow. And we, I see these trees as future old growth, you know, as long as we let them grow. Mm. So I wanted to ask you guys to give some contact information if people want to network with this effort more. Oh, sure. I have an email address that folks could contact uh, if anyone would like you know, maybe repeat directions or updates about other dates to get involved. The email address is surgemendocoat at gmail.com. And that is spelled S-U-R-J, Mendocoast, M-E-N-D-O-C-O-A-S-T, at gmail.com. Now, Surge is a group which stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. And we are in alliance with the Black Lives Matter movement um, based in Ukiah and also Mendo Coast BIPOC here on the coast. And we've taken up this issue of importance uh, because we're following the lead of elders like Priscilla Hunter and other um, Pomo people because not only is this an environmental issue, but it's a racial justice issue. This, the Pomo people should have sovereignty. They should have control over this land because they took care of it a lot better than the settler society has been doing. Andy, just to illuminate me and our listeners, you said Mendo Coast BIPOC. What is that? Oh, Mendo Coast BIPOC. Um, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And it's a phrase that's being used now instead of just saying, like, as a way to kind of encompass um, you know, all these different ethnic groups that are not white. Yeah. And so BIPOC has become like an acronym, so to speak, for, you know, these different ethnic groups. Okay, thank you very much. Well, do you have... You, yeah, you, they're, doing, they're doing some really great work here on the coast. The Mendo Coast BIPOC is. They've been involved in all kinds of Black Lives Matter rallies and organizing things here on the coast and also um, working with Black Lives Matter in Ukiah and uh, it's been like a real honor to work with them. Okay, I, just to close, I have a personal question for each of you. Andy, as a parent, you mentioned your daughter is six, you said? Almost, yep. Almost six. 
How is she responding to this, and how does it feel as a parent to move in this direction? You know, she's been very excited to get involved, and in fact, was like, "I'm, you know, I want to meet with other young people. You know, I want to, you know, the kids have have important ideas too, and stuff like that. And it just makes me so excited and just so proud of her. You know, and just yeah, excited for her future and what she wants to do. And I just want to be there to support support whatever she whatever she wants for herself and her future. Oh, beautiful answer. Thank you, Andy. And Sarah, as a young person, how does it feel to you to be tapping into this wider movement? We mentioned a minute ago, the Sunrise Movement is on March right now, and and kind of tapped into the awakening that Greta Thunberg seems to have inspired. How does it feel to you to be stepping into this, into this river? Um, it's really exciting. Yeah, I feel just like really glad that I am able to look up to all these people that are doing so much that are similar in age to me. And I think that, I mean, it's, it's our future. So we as younger people need to really get involved because it's going to be affecting us for our entire lives. Okay, Andy, I wanted to, to invite you one more time to give that email address if you want more information. Oh, sure. First of all, here's my daughter, Jory. She just came over. She'd like to say something. This oh, hello, Jory. Hello, Jory. How are you? Thank you for being on the radio with us tonight. What would you like to tell the listeners at KZ? I've been here many, many, many times. And also, I really don't have many redwoods at my house, so when I see the redwoods in other places, it feels so magical. <laughs> and Jory, how, how, is it, how, how is it for you to be there at the tree set in the forest? What does it feel like to you? Well, it feels magical. Magical. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful answer. Right on. Jory, yeah. is she Are, still there or is she gone? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Well, I was just going to ask her, we do need to move on to our next segment soon, but I just want to see if there was anything else you wanted to tell listeners tonight. Oh, Jory. Oh, Jory, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jory, thank you so much. Thank you so much for telling our KZWX listeners your story here. Yeah, okay. I've got that email address again for folks. <laughs> Just go practical on you. Uh, okay. Serge Mendo Coast at gmail.com. That's S U R J Mendo Coast at gmail.com. Andy and Sarah, I want to thank you both very much for being with us. I want to thank you for your efforts and thank you for communicating them to our listenership tonight. Thank you for having me. Yes, hopefully, hopefully this will help to grow your message even more. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you too, Chris. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to our next segment now. Coming up after the song, we'll have Daniel Sheehan, an attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project. Okay, we're back here in the studio. This is Chris Skyhawk on Universal Perspectives. I'll tell, tell a little bit about what the project, Lakota People's Law Project is about. They are a group of people in South Dakota. The state of South Dakota is not conforming to the laws to keep children in tribal communities, and they're, they're putting them in foster care and white families, and they're not supposed to do that. 
But the Lakota People's Law Project, they started out to defend these children and keep the children in the communities. And uh, then they evolved, and they're involved in several things now, including the Dakota Access Pipeline and a number of environmental issues that are very important to the preservation of indigenous cultures in that part of the country. And also this ties in, I want to, I want to kind of gently start to introduce the, the idea that of the boarding schools have, have their impact on tribal communities, and we have that here too. But I do want to talk about the impact of basically the American culture stealing Native children long after, long after the massacres were over, the impact on families and sending kids to boarding schools, retraining them away from their indigenous ways. It had a huge impact. So I'll be covering that in the future universe perspectives. If we don't get our guests pretty soon, I guess we're going to have an open line until 8 o'clock. Hold on, maybe we have it. Maybe we have Daniel now. Well, anyway. Okay. Oh, Daniel, I, I did a very weak introduction of the Lakota Peters Law Project because I don't know very much. I know some. I know enough to have you on. So we have you here. This is great. So you are a staff attorney with this group? I'm, I'm the chief counsel, yeah. Chief counsel, okay. For the Lakota Peters Law Project, yep. So give us a little introduction on what the Lakota Peters Law Project, project is about. This, this is, a, uh, is a major project that's been uh, for the last 15 years. Uh, up uh, based out of Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, we began uh, working with the grandmothers, the Lakota grandmothers, who were having their children taken away at the rate of over 740 uh, kids a year. And uh, the, uh, the Department of Social Services was refusing to allow any of the other relatives to take care of the kids. And they were, they were bringing them into the foster care system and then putting them up for adoption. Uh, you know, and so we we had a huge fight with them, uh, and finally got them to stop doing that. We had an NPR major radio uh, program uh, going on about it, uh, and we finally got the uh, Justice Department to draft an entire different set of uh, enforcement regulations, rules and regulations for the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so we were we were working with the the people uh, on various issues and working to try to get. Them to set up their own foster care program uh, under the, the with direct federal funding uh, in the the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline confrontation began, and because we were as familiar as we were with not only Pine Ridge and, and Cheyenne River and, and Rosebud, but also Standing Rock uh, Tribal Council people, we were asked to come in to help defend uh, some of the principles that were involved in that. Uh, and we ended up doing the major case with Chase Iron Eyes, who was the Democratic Party nominee for Congress uh, out, of, uh, out of North Dakota, who was uh, arrested uh, at the behest of Tiger Swan, the private military company that they brought in, who charged him with being the uh, ringleader of a domestic uh, indigenous terrorist uh, group, i.e. the Lakota people. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we ended up uh, basically kicking their butt in, in, in trial and, and court pointing out that uh, you know, this, it was absolutely necessary for him to do what we did because the legal system was completely failing to enforce the uh, Environmental Protection Act and to protect the, the people's water. So uh, we've, we've been involved there with Lakota Territory for the last 15 years, but I have been earlier uh, back at the in the occupation the wounded knee occupation back in 1973 i was co-counsel for the american civil liberties union uh in helping to do the amicus briefs that were being filed in the major criminal prosecution against the the american indian people part of which resulted in getting all the charges dismissed against them for prosecutorial misconduct and that's one of the reasons why uh, they reached out to to me and to, uh, to my office when this problem began in uh, 2003 when uh, the, the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration came in and uh, a whole set of procedures began to seize these children. So that's how we that's how we got back involved in it years later after the original confrontation at Wounded Knee to come in to work on this issue of uh, trying to protect the children. So you have, long, you have a long track record, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we've been there for a long time. So we, we have 
we have a staff of five people that are full time. They're mostly Lakota people. Uh, uh, one one is not that's, uh, who's uh, our director of the Lakota Project, Daniel Paul Nelson, uh, who is who is there as kind of a uh, an assistant to the Lakota people that are working in the, in the office. So. Daniel, I wanted to tack back. I first became aware of the Lakota People's Law Project around the children's issue. Yes. And then I, and then I did notice that this the movement towards DAPL and probably some other things, too. Let's talk about, so they were just ignoring the Indian Child Welfare Act? Oh, yes. No, not a doubt about it. It's just flagrant, flagrant violation of the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, mandate. And uh, so, this, and the problem is that the the position that the court had taken in South Dakota was that nobody could get any kind of relief from the federal courts uh, against their violation of the Indian Child Welfare Act. They took the position that uh, if they read the Indian Child Welfare Act, it did not give standing to anybody to object to its violation. <laughs> so. So uh, that's why we ended up uh, going to the Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, uh, and complaining about this and working with uh, uh, Deer and Water, who was the uh, Native American guy on the, uh, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So we worked together to re uh, redraft all the enforcement rules and regulations to make it perfectly clear that we could, in fact, uh, stop this. And so that's how we got them to stop doing that. So is this happening all anymore? Or did you get the whole thing to to stop? Well, it's it's uh, it's what what the the real solution to this thing, as we resolve, is to have the Lakota people have their own uh, child uh, protection system, you know, and have their own uh, child uh, welfare operation and family services, etc have them funded by the federal government directly because the, the problem is that the the white-run Department of Social Services in the state of South Dakota had transformed the whole program into a get-rich system for themselves. You know, that they were they were bringing in up to $79,000 a year uh, for each of the Lakota children that they would seize and take into custody uh, because they would immediately classify them as a special needs child. And uh, therefore, under the uh, Federal Adoption and Safe Families Act, they could uh, get special funding uh, for these children. Uh, and they were, they were basically renting them out to white families uh, and giving the white family only $13,000 a year. And they were keeping all the rest. <laughs> My goodness. So it, it turns out that all, over half of the annual budget of the state of South Dakota was being generated by taking Native children. Uh, and, uh, and putting them uh, and refusing to allow any of their native relatives to have uh, custody of them uh, if there was any problem with their parenting. Because if they did that, they wouldn't be able to apply to the federal government for the funds. Uh, and so, so that's why we had to get the rules and regulations changed uh, by the Justice Department. So when you say half of the state budget, you mean the whole state of South Dakota or what this yeah, all of, all of South Dakota. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. $79,000 a child. They were they, they were taking, the, on an average, 743 children a year uh, they were taking away under any any pretense. You know, for, for example, there, there'd be a, a Friday night and uh, the native, some Native people that lived in the, uh, the housing, uh, public housing uh, there in Rapid City, They'd be having a like a barbecue or something out in their backyard, and some white people would call up local police and say, "There's Indians uh, out there, and I think they're drinking beer." And so the police would show up, uh, and they would bring breathalyzers with them, and they would go around and they would give blood breathalyzer exams to all the women that were there at the barbecue to see if any of them had been drinking, uh, and if any of them blew more than a point oh eight which would not have allowed them to be driving, but none of them were driving. But if any of them did, they, what they would do is they would immediately go to try to find out where their children are, and they would take children into custody uh, and charge her with child neglect. My God. Uh, and, and take her into custody, and then they would snatch the children 
and bring them to the Department of Social Services, and they would immediately have what they call an emergency hearing uh, within 24 hours while the mother's still in jail, uh, and she couldn't attend the, the hearing. And then they would have an immediate ex parte hearing uh, and turn the children over to the Department of Social Services. And the public defender's office were advising a family, say, oh, no, don't, don't try to intervene in this. Just lay down, take it easy. You know, they'll, they, they'll only have the kid in there for 90 days. And they would put the child in there for 90 days. And then they would set up all these rules that the mother had to come to, uh, like, three or four different classes every week one for uh, child training, one for uh, alcohol abuse, uh, one for uh, uh, anger management. They had all these. Yeah, I bet, <laughs> I bet they were pretty angry after this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and so, so the problem was that the, uh, most of the, the people don't have the money to be able to come from the reservation all the way back to the Rapid City, you know, like three or four times in one week. That's a two-hour uh, drive, right? Month. Yeah, yes, exactly. And most of them don't even have a car. You know, and so all they had to do was miss two of those classes, and that they used that as grounds for permanently removing the child uh, and, and, uh, and terminating the parental rights. And so they could put them then into the adoption system so that not only could they get the $79,000 per year for the child, for the special needs child, but what they would do is they would get a hold of the American Association of Adoption Attorneys, and they were getting up to a hundred thousand dollars a piece for the children that they would they would then put on the market to to uh, to have adopted by white white people, you know. And we we caught them doing this, uh, and uh, and we shone the light on them. We got the Justice Department to change all the rules, and uh, you know. And so that then and so with with the change of the rules, we can stop them from invoking this emergency. Uh, hearing uh, every time, every single time. Now, there was a tiny exception inside the rules of the, the Indian Child Welfare Act that under extreme exigent circumstances, they could have an emergency hearing within 24 hours. Uh, but they were doing it for every single case. And then they were using it as a means for seizing the children. Uh, and so that, you know, now we're, we're going to go back in working with the Biden administration and the new Justice Department people you know, and we've now got Deb Holland in as the Secretary of Interior, so we're going to be working with them in coordination with the, the Department of Health and Human Services to try to get uh, the uh, each of the tribes, quote, each of the reservations, uh, to have their own child and family services, which are funded directly by the federal government, and, and pay for training of, of Lakota people to to do the kind of uh, the kind of assistance to the for children. Including, you know, teaching them the Lakota language and teaching them about their culture, et cetera. Uh, so that that's what we're engaged in now. Dana, I'm just going to take a moment and reintroduce the show for a minute. In case you're joining us, this is Chris Skyhawk, KZYX. This is the Universe Perspectives. My guest is Daniel Sheehan. He's an attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project. And he was talking about how the Lakota People's Law Project recently got the state of South Dakota to basically stop stealing Lakota children for money. So, and, 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 it's just, and it's just that they now get to be placed with their relatives, you know, and that, uh, and ideally, uh, we will succeed now in the process of getting each of the the the, res- the nine reservations there in South Dakota. Each one of them will have their own uh, child and family services, and, and paid and paid for by the federal government. Uh, so, Daniel, train the people. Daniel, I want to ask you a question, a little bit of, of a broader thing. Part, I'll admit that part of my interest in this is, in 1990, I spent um, a couple of months <clears throat> living on living around the Pine Ridge Reservation. I was just traveling nomadically, and I got to know some people there. And that was my first personal knowledge about boarding schools and what happened there. <laughs> and I talked to I, I talked to some people, and there are stories that just still chill me down to the very core of my heart. And oh, what yeah. what happened in yeah. these board, what happened in these boarding schools after all the Indians were rounded up and locked on reservations, oh, and yeah. so, you know, so that is part of my interest in in covering this with you tonight. And oh, sir, sir, stand by. This is Sarah. I think she's trying to get get on too for the interview. Stand stand by one second, okay? Don't go away. Here's okay. Hello. Who are we waiting for? 
I think Daniel's gone up to get a, another co-host, to, or, I mean, another guest another for the guest. show. So he'll be joining us in just a moment. But uh, maybe give a little bit of refresher to people sure. who Daniel is and when. Daniel Sheehan is staff is with the, the attorney for the Lakota People's Law Project. And he has been talking to us how this project recently got the state of South Dakota stopped basically stealing Indian kids from their families for money they would make off of them and putting them into foster care systems and adoption and... Things along that line. I'm oh. sorry. Here, I, I, that was that was Sarah. She, I thought she was supposed to be on with us. She's going to call the same number because she's the executive director of the whole operation. Okay. So, Daniel, what I was going to ask you, and tying into the boarding yeah. school project, boarding school issue, it seems yeah. like oh, the, the lights are flashing. I guess it will be Sarah, huh? That's that's lovely, Sarah. Hello. Hi. Um, I, my husband, Daniel Sheehan, just gave me the phone number for a Lakota program, and we have a Lakota People's Law Project at our institute. Yes. Hello? Hello? So who is this that's coming on? Yes, my name is Chris Skyhawk. I'm with KZYX. I'm the host of the show. And if we're yeah. going to have another guest on, that's great. And, but who is it? Who, who is it? <laughs> Sarah is the executive director Hello, of the entire of the entire project of the the, the Lakota People's Law Project is a is a uh, a project of the Romero Institute, uh, which is the major five hundred one c three that has that helps sustain this and uh, does a lot of the administration stuff. Okay, and helps uh, raise funds. Well, I'm gonna I'll, I'll toss this question out to both of you and. Uh, Sarah, Daniel has done a good job of telling us what you guys have been doing in recent years to get the state of South Dakota to leave children in their intact communities and families. And yeah. I was saying that part of my interest in the subject is I spent some time around 1990 on, on Pine Ridge, and that was when I first really understood about boarding schools and how mm -hmm. they were deliberately used to shatter indigenous cultures and I'm curious right. how you see these two things, what the connection is. I know they don't officially have boarding schools now, but it certainly seems like there could be some connections here. I wonder if either of you care to comment on that. Well, I think the most disturbing thing that we... Uh, Danny did a, a, an investigation, because we always do deep investigations around litigations that we've done or even policy efforts which is this turned out to be a policy effort and uh, and we also had a number of interns from the University of California in Santa Cruz who were great just great young people and uh, they were doing research and it was very hard to find out what was going on in the state of South Dakota because they were like 49 out of 50 in terms of no transparency and, and with the rest of the states in the United States. It was terrible trying to get information. But eventually this is what the most, you know, the most important items were that we really realized. One is that they uh, were, were turning all of their foster care institutions into medical pharmaceutical places because they could get twice as much money from the federal government if they were um, able to give drugs to these kids. And um, so, you know, they were, they were raking in money, really, is what was happening. The state of South Dakota was receiving a lot of federal money from the Health and Human Services Department of the government for, for the foster care that was going on with Native children. And, and the institutions were being turned into ones that brought in twice as much money because they could do drugs. And I, I mean, I remember interviewing an older man, a beautiful human being. He's, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he, he was, he would, was teaching, um, the Lakota language in one of these foster care institutions, all run by white people and stuff, but they had him come uh, I don't know how many times a week, and teach the kids about the Lakota language. And they all, he said, it broke my heart because they all wanted to come home with me. They all wanted me to take them home. But, but the, the, I asked him, I said, well, what was, what was it like, you know, in terms of the, the, the issue of the drugs? Did ever, you know, and he said every morning when they would come to breakfast, 
there would be these drugs by their by their uh, breakfast plates, and they couldn't eat if they didn't take these things. And um, I mean, that is just inconceivable mm. that all the children who they say are they are taking because their parents are irresponsible in some way, and that's not always true, but in some cases it is. But the point is that doesn't mean the children need drugs. I mean, it's just inconceivable that all the children would need drugs. And he said there was there was one drug that they gave them if they got upset and and were making a lot of noise or carrying on, they would give them a drug that would knock them out. And he said, I don't know why they didn't die. It just knocked them out in a second, and they were out. And I later talked to a woman who um, was an expert. She's an expert in, in foster care issues, one of the top experts in the country, and she said, she actually knew the name of that drug. I can't remember what it was, but she said, oh, I know what that is. And she, she, she said the name of it, and it's used to control them. But, but what we realized is they were kind of like a cash cow for the state. And um, the second thing about that is that, um, that it became clear they wouldn't give them to the, kin, to the grandmothers or to the extended family members that wanted to take care of them. They wouldn't give them to them because if they did, they would not receive the, the amount of money in the state that they wanted to receive. And that was one thing. The other thing is they, um, if, if they did give them, in, which they did in rare circumstances, but if they did, they gave them much less money. So the kinship people... Um, would the, the Lakota kinship people would have would receive much less money from the state of South Dakota than a white foster care uh, family would. So the kids were really going to white foster care families and to white institutions in the state. And in both of those places, almost all those kids were getting drugs, serious drugs. And um, and they, when they would when they would pick up a child in the Dakotas, which they were doing all the time, they would automatically call them special needs children. That, it, that was automatic. Okay, this is a special needs child. Because if you have a special needs child in your system, you get more money from the federal government. I mean, it was just, it was so disheartening. And it was structurally uh, worse uh, because what we discovered, this is extraordinary, what we discovered is that how this whole thing started was with uh, George W. Bush when he was the governor in Texas. Uh, he was the governor in Texas from 1996 to the year 2000, the year he was elected to the presidency. And when he was when he was governor, he for the first time of any governor in the entire country, he uh, said that if any child is going to be taken into the foster care program in the state of Texas or into any juvenile detention facility, they had to be they had to be given a mental health screening test. Uh, and so what he did, he's saying that, well, we're going to try to stop them from being mentally, have any kind of mental difficulty, so we won't have to end up having to pay for them being in prison later in their life. And so what he did is they, they, he said, okay, we're going to have the, the state draft up a, a mental health screening test for these foster kids. What they did is they, he said, oh, uh, a, a lot of these uh, things they might have as symptoms, the Eli Lilly Corporation. Uh, my dad, George Bush Sr., happens to sit on the board of directors of the Eli Lilly Corporation. Uh, and it turns out that he Dan said. Quayle's, Dan Quayle's uh, wife was uh, one of the heiresses of the, of, the, uh, of the company, of the fortune from the company to Eli Lilly. And so Eli Lilly actually drafted up a test, like 100 questions, and each one of the questions was symptom-specific. And so that if the kid, if the kid answered the question the wrong way, uh, they would say, oh, he's in need of one of the pharmaceuticals that just happens to be produced by the Eli Lilly Corporation. What a nice... So they did, yes, totally conveniently. And so what they did is that they would, if, if the kids flunked the test, they would classify them as a special needs child. And then they would apply to the federal government for the $79,000 a year. For this what a nice but, 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 Danny, tell, yeah. mention what's on this test, because 
It's oh, not yeah, that yeah. they flunk it. It's that, it's that the no. test is designed in such a way that if they a- yeah. ask, answer it honestly, they're, they're going to be told that they flunk it. For instance, yeah. well, they, they, yeah. if they say, do you ever feel anxious when you're walking down the street like people are watching you? Well, if you're a Native American in South Dakota, the answer yeah. to that is yes. <laughs> of course, right. You know, just just well, because you're a Native American. Or Texas. Or Texas. Or, it, it turn, it yeah, turns out, I mean, it turns out the other thing is, do, do you ever, is there, you ever discuss or talk about spirits? Well, of course. In the Native culture, there's a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. And, 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 and they just had the, well, anyway. Well, 63% of the, of the non-white kids that were administered this Texas mental health algorithm test in Texas under George Bush, 63% of the non-white kids would flunk the test and be found to be in need of one or more of the pharmaceuticals that were produced by the Eli Lilly Corporation. In Native American children, it was 95%. 95% of the, of the Native children that were given that test would flunk it. Uh, and so what happened is the, the, these $79,000 that 320s kids was flowing into the state of Texas, and they were using about half of each one of those grants, $79,000, to purchase pharmaceuticals from the Eli Lilly Corporation. And the Eli Lilly Corp, the people that were responsible in the Eli Lilly Corporation for the state of Texas were making so much money that the company gave them bonuses. Uh, and then the, the CEO of the Eli Lilly Corporation, uh, I remember I told you, who's, who Dan Quayle's wife is the heiress to their fortune. The CEO of the Eli Lilly Corporation would go around to each of the men that was given one of these bonuses and ask him to contribute it to the presidential campaign of George Bush Jr. <laughs> may the circle be unbroken. Yeah, and that, and that, and that's yeah may the circle be unbroken. <laughs> that's and and right. the, first thing he, the first thing he did is when he arrived in Washington, D.C., he appointed a blue ribbon commission to determine whether or not they should condition any federal funds coming from the Adoption of Safe Families Act, condition it on that state adopting the Texas Health Mental uh, uh, Freedom right. Test. And okay. the first state to do it was South Dakota, because the term governor, uh, while Bill Jenklo, uh, when they would Jack, go to the yeah, National Jack Conference Hill. of Mayors, mm-hmm. and, and so that they got to be friends, and, and W invited him to come to the inauguration. And when he came to the inauguration uh, in in 2001, uh, Bush told him about this thing, this cottage industry that they had in Texas. And so he goes back to, to South Dakota and immediately adopted the Texas Mental Health Algorithm Test. And then it, it established this way that they could immediately classify all the Native kids as special needs children. And Daniel, Daniel I want to step in for just a second. This is a horrifying what you're telling us, and, and I do appreciate do yeah. appreciate you're telling us this. But I do want to also tack on some of the more recent efforts of the Code People's Law Project. You did say that yes. you are, yeah. are having more control with these situations now, and I well, would like to I'd like to I would like to for you guys to lay out also what your project is doing these days. I know you got involved with DAPL and probably some other things, too. Maybe you could tell the listeners about that also. Yes, could, could I ask you, uh, your, where is your program? Where are you located? We are in Northern California, Sarah. Northern California. Yeah, okay. we're, we're, about, we're about north of San Francisco in Mendocino County. Okay. Well, well let, let me just tie off what we've been talking about by saying, that we now, the Lakota People's Law Project now has a, an actual foster care home on Standing Rock for uh, the most vulnerable kids there. And, um, and, 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 you know, we're also in the process of starting, uh, we're trying to purchase, uh, we, have to, we still have to raise a little more money, but I think 20000 to do it, but we, we're trying to purchase a building that could be a really great teen center because there's no uh, teen activities for teenagers after school and and tutoring and sports and art and you know traditional cultural ceremonies and wonderful things that could happen so that's that's a very positive stuff that's happening right now and and in in, in addition to that the our the director we have two directors chase iron eyes and daniel nelson and uh 
Daniel Nelson is working on the possibility of the tribe actually being able to uh, become um, uh, qualified for the government to send them the money to run their own child and family service program, and then the state of South Dakota would not be able to take their children anymore. Uh, but that's going to be, that takes a lot of, of work and a lot of uh, learning on the part of the people to get their masters and be able to run those kind of programs. But it is the systemic solution to the problem of what they call the terrible taking of their children that has been going on for so long. The real solution is for them to run their own child and family service and kinship and foster care program. It is being done by the Navajo. It is being done by the Port Gamble tribe in uh, Port Gamble Squalum tribe in in Washington State. It's it's doable. It's just you know it's a lot of work, and uh, we're we're revisiting that question again. And and I'm you know hoping that. That 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 would be great if it happened at Standing Rock, because then Standing Rock could help the Sarah, other. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We, we only have two minutes left to the show, so I want to be oh. sure that any concluding remarks, as well as how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your issues. Oh well, they should they can contact us at the that Romero Institute dot org dot org has the Lakota People's Project right there when you go to, when you go there and you can go into it and it has an action center and everything. Plus, it has the work that we're doing here in California. Um, and we are fighting Dapple. We're continuing to fight Dapple in you know with videos and online organizing and and what have you. We're, we have a relationship with Deb Holland and helped get her appointed, and uh, that's an ongoing thing this year. We're going to have a voting campaign of of registering people to vote and also getting out the vote in 20, uh, 2022 because we know how important that is. And we had two successful voting programs in last year that were really, really important and helpful in the Native community. So we're going to do that again. And, um, and, and, and Chase Ironize now has his own media show every week where he brings on Native voices that can, be, that can now reach an, a national audience. So okay, I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm going to have to step in. We're going to have to. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Perfect. Great. I, thank, thank you for being you with us. It. I also want to thank. Perfect. This has been Chris Skyhawk on KZYX Universe Perspectives. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.